Hey, my name is Eric McCoy. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Recovering Through Highness. You know, in my book, Pain, Failure, and Misery are the Stepping Stones to Success. I have a chapter that's called, Is Recovery Real? And I define my understanding of what we are recovering from. And it isn't alcohol abuse or meth abuse, as that was my drug of choice. The reason I believe that is because for me, recovery is something that I have to maintain for the rest of my life. Recovering from drug abuse is temporary, as my body will ultimately heal itself. I'm recovering and will always be recovering from grief and loss. I lost my health, my family, my friends, my job, my sanity, my freedom while on drugs. And my best friend was methamphetamine because it was always there. I knew how it was going to make me feel. It would numb my feelings and it was going to help me through tough times. And it was only when I had a moment of clarity that my family, health, sanity, and freedom were more important than my best friend. I had to let go and grieve the loss of that friend. And that's what I'm recovering from. And in some ways, I'm always going to miss it. That battle that I, as well as a lot of people have had, is when we have to determine what is most important to us. The drug had caused me to lose my health my friends, my family, and my freedom, and was going to kill me. But my mind was also telling me that I was going to die if I stopped using that chemical. And this is what we define as between a rock and a hard place. Neither choice is good. I want to introduce to you my special guest, and his name is Joe Potosi. And from what I've read is he's a very busy man. He's the author of When the Dust Settled, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. He's been in the Christian ministry since 1997, had a television and radio program for over 12 years. He's an ambassador for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Children. He's a motivational speaker. He's a custodian at a local university. And probably what is most important is he's the father of two sons. I want to thank you, Joe, for coming on this show. And I want to say real quick that I love the name of your book. And as an author myself, you know, we title the book with something that's powerful and that really means something to us. And I want to ask you really quick, what does that title really mean to you? Well, first of all, Eric, I want to thank you for this opportunity to speak with you. And I really appreciate what you just shared, because let's be honest, a lot of men are not as transparent as yourself and what you've been through. And it takes a lot of courage, but it takes, you know, sincerity and the desire to stay well. So thank you for that, man. That was really powerful. Thank you so much. So if I can share the origination of the title. So this is going back about 1996. At the time, I was um, pretty active with church. And we had these Christian retreat weekends. It was like all the men from the church would go. And we would spend a weekend at um, a retreat, and we would get letters from strangers and family members alike just encouraging us, saying they're praying for us, etc. And I got a letter from my brother Greg, who, if you were to read the book, he was one of the big targets of my mom and stepdad. But he basically said, he made this statement, and he said, you know, Joe, when the dust settled, you were still standing. 
and that has always stuck with me. Yeah. That dust represented the chaos, the calamity in my life. You know, the uncertainty of where I was going to sleep at night, where the next meal was going to come from. Now, that wasn't the common theme throughout, but there was periods of time where we were homeless and food was something we didn't have. You know, it was always an uncertainty. And between a rock and a hard place, I was stuck. My father left me when I was between the ages of three and four. The family dynamics changed, and I was stuck, and I was also a big target of my mom and stepdad. I reminded them of my my father every day. I talked like him. I acted like him. I wanted him back in my life. And so I was between a rock and a hard place. So you grew up with your mother and then your stepfather. Yes, sir. And so your book, you also talk a lot about abuse, and that's really kind of a big theme throughout your book. Yes. And um, so what kind of abuse did you go through? Both physical and emotional, psychological. Let me strike the stage to kind of give you um, kind of a picture of what the family makeup was. We lived in the projects in Illinois, near Chicago, in the 70s. When my father left, my mom started dating this guy named Tyrone, who happened to be a black guy. Now, a white woman and a black man was not really accepted back in those days, right? Mm. It is what it was. She had two kids to him. My mother would be beaten by my stepdad. Over the period of time we were with him, he broke a jaw, broke a collarbone. And she, in turn, would beat me and my sister and latch out at my brother, Greg. And she would say it's because of me, his hatred for me. He beats the piss out of her all the time. So she would take it out of me. One example was what, what he liked to do. My mom would work second shift. He didn't work. He would send us out to the basement after school. And we we're only allowed upstairs when it was time for dinner, time for a bath, etc. When I would get in trouble for something I legitimately did that he didn't like or his perception, he would come downstairs and my mom would sit at the top of the stairs and he would have me stripped naked. My only sister and my brothers would be sitting around watching as he would berate me for whatever, something he didn't like. And he had a wooden paddle he would often use, sometimes a cord from an iron he would use. And once he got done with his spiel, he would just wear me out, pick me up by one arm and just hit the back of my head, my back, my butt, and just drop me like a sack of potatoes, right? And how old were you at this time? First, second grade when it really kind of spiraled out of control. And me and my sister in particular, who got to go to Iowa in the summers, where my mom and father, my real father, are from. And at this point, no one's heard from my dad. No one knows where he's at. And I longed for him to be back in my life. I didn't understand what was going on. I mean, I remember going to school every day. A lot of my friends would take their time getting to school, literally drag their feet. Not me. I would usually run. Because at school, I wouldn't be beaten, I wouldn't be berated, I wouldn't be treated like an animal. And when I would get to Dubuque, Iowa, they would find my dad, whatever he would be, and I would be able to spend time with him. But this is the sucky part. My dad was my hero, right? And I cried out to my dad and to my paternal grandparents about what I was, what I was enduring under the hands of my mom and stepdad. I cried out for help. But instead of them contacting the authorities, 
or the police, they would get on the phone and cuss out my stepdad and my mom. So when I would go back to Rockford, I had hell to pay. I mean, he beat me like it was no tomorrow. So your dad would, would contact them yes, and let them know what you were saying. So you think you can confide in your family, your extended family, or a, a, a teacher, or the people at church. But all three of those groups failed us. And I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. There was a time, Eric, I used to dream I could fly. Well, when I would dream, I, I could fly. And I would fly from Rockford every night to Dubuque, Iowa, where I would find my dad at, my, at his parents' home. And I'll fly back in the morning just before school started. I mean, that's how much I missed him, right? And my four younger brothers, two of those boys were his sons. They didn't know anyone but my stepfather as their dad, right? It was only me and my sister who knew who my father was. And it just complicated everything. Do you think that parents do the best they can with the information they have? And I, and I say that because... When we were talking on the phone the other day, you had brought up that you were going to break the cycle, which I like. And I like, I like how you had said that. And parents, a lot of times, will typically parent the way that they were parented. Exactly right. And do you see that within, is your mother still alive or? Yes, she is. And, do you, and you know her parents. I didn't really know her parents. They died when I was really young. Do you feel that the way that she parented was related at all to the way that she was parented? That's an awesome question, sir. I'm glad you brought that up. So let me just tell you this. My mother, my father, and my stepfather all had traumatic, awful childhoods. However, that does not give them the right or did not give them the right or the license to treat us children the way they did. Absolutely. This is what I did, Eric. I took that template of what my stepdad did and my father, and I I flipped it. I did the opposite, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I was so afraid of becoming a dad because of just that thing, learned behavior. Mm-hmm. Talk to your child the way you were talked to. Beat your children the way you were beaten to. And to be quite honest, when it came to that point in time where I had to discipline my children, I really had to work through that process extra hard because it was in the back of my mind all this time, you know, what I endured. Not that I'm living in the past, but I analyze everything, right? And that's huge. I feel bad my mom had those experiences. I feel bad about my stepdad having those experiences and my father. But again, people say it's so hard to break the cycle. I don't know if it's hard. It's just a matter of saying, you know, determined to do it, to make a difference. This topic is so interesting to me because even in my book, in Pain, Failure, and Misery of the Stepping Stones to Success, I have a chapter in there that's called Think, Think, Think. It's based on the idea that in our society, we don't typically teach people to think for themselves. And I introduced this chapter with the story of Ed Gein. You know the story of Ed Gein? Yes. 
they made Texas Chainsaw Massacre based on him. You know, Buffalo Bill with Science of the Lambs, Norman Bates from Psycho, and they were all based on this character. And why this is so interesting to me, because it brings up the question, is evil created or is evil born? And if you looked at the story of Ed Gein, Ed Gein grew up with a mother who was fanatically religious. And the emotional abuse that he dealt with was enormous. He was consistently told by his mother that all women are going to drag you to hell. They're all prostitutes. They're all whores. Everything was just this fanatically religious thing that ultimately put an enormous amount of fear in him. Bullied at school. He was only allowed to go to school and then home. Was never allowed to associate with anybody. Never had any ability to have friends. So his only learning that he had was that one person who he trusted the most, which was his mother. Now, there was also theories that there was sexual abuse that went along with that. And then, of course, with his story, he, came, he, went, he went along and did some very horrific, horrible things that they found out later after his mother had passed away. That idea really sits in my mind because I really did think about that a lot. And I really did explore that. We look at racism. Racism is a taught thing. Parents that teach their children about hate and racism. We don't like this race. We don't, you know, associate with them. They're bad people. They're less than, you know, that kind of stuff. And so it's a taught thing. And again, it goes back to that question, nature versus nurture. Of course, the big psychology debate, nature versus nurture. So that's why I had asked you that question, you know, on the idea of, of, you know, were your parents teaching you the way that they were parented? And yes, it does not justify it, but it does allow us to understand. Right. So what is the relationship like with your mother now, if you have one? Unfortunately, it's pretty toxic. For years, ever since I was in like third grade, I, I got a job in third grade, sweeping a local parking lot at a local, at a little restaurant to make money to give to her. And in fifth grade, I had a paper out, made a ton of money. To me, it was a ton of money. And I'll give it to her to kind of make her happy, to have her like me. Because I felt like it was my fault they had to file bankruptcy. It was my fault she was being beaten. It was my fault we didn't have much food, right? Everything was my fault. I started to believe that by giving her money, maybe she'll like me, she'll accept me. Well, that carried over into my adulthood as well. Up until I had children, children of my own, she'll come to town and I would roll to red carpet and just be, just do everything for her or whatever. But I was never, ever good enough. In fact, I was, for a long time, I was doing the 12th step, taking her to meetings every Saturday, taking her to church so she can be fed, you know, she can be around people that, that are wholesome, that are good for her, positive vibe, et cetera. But still, I was never good enough. And she doesn't drive because of the fact that she got like three DUIs, lost her license years ago. So essentially, um, she's just a very narcissistic, manipulative, what's the word? Manipulative? Yeah, manipulative. (laughs) And not a very nice person. And you know, it's really sad, Eric, but I won't regret this. The fact that as my children were growing up, they didn't really get to know her very much. She would come to like the birthday parties. She would come to some of their sporting events. And I'll tell you why. It's because at that point, she was still drinking. She was a really mean drunk. 
and we never knew what to expect. I watched my niece and nephew, my sister's children, be around my mother when she would be in that state of mind and how she would get really mean with the kids and hit them and stuff like that. So I, I chose to keep my kids away. And we can debate that, but I don't regret it because I was subjected to it and it affected me negatively. I wanted my kids to think good of her, but not see the ugly side of her. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, there are there are family that are too dangerous to go back and associate with. Yes. You know, one thing I teach a lot in the substance abuse industry is the concept of forgiveness. What does forgiveness mean to you? And and was that something that you were able to apply? I'm so glad you brought that up, Eric. Listen, let's suppose me and you had an extremely traumatic childhood, right? And like for me, because of my childhood, I suffer PTSD, anxiety, depression, all of that, right? But there came a time when I was going to become a father for the first time in 1998. Now, I thought I had closure. At this point, I found closure with my father. When I say closure, I mean forgiveness. I let go of the anger, resentment, and being hurt the way I was. So that was resolved. Did we have a perfect relationship after that? No, but we were working on it. I thought I had closure with my mom. I guess it's like this there. If you love your mother, for example, use her. By default, you forgive her, right? It's kind of like it goes hand in hand. I love her, so I forgive her. And that was kind of my MO all those years. Like, I love you, mom, so I'm just going to let it go. I'm going to let it go. Well, I wasn't really letting it go because it was affecting me. She was renting space in my mind. So when I knew I was going to become a father, as strange as this sounds, Eric, this is what really happened. I began to have dreams and nightmares of what I endured as a kid. And people with PTSD say that's kind of like something they suffered with for years and years. I never had those type of things. And I just had all this, I was, all this anxiety and angst toward, especially my stepfather. And God, not in a verbal voice, not an audible voice, I should say, kept telling me, I have forgiven you. Who were you not to forgive? Now, I'm a relatively new Christian. I've been a Christian for about a year. and one particular day, I made a conscious decision to forgive her and my stepfather, not because they asked for forgiveness, not because they wrote me a letter saying, I'm sorry, not because my mom made an amends and like in, with the program. No, in spite of them, I forgave them. And I can tell you, Eric, it set me free. And I write about that. It set me free. It was like a million pounds lifted off my chest. It's the only way I can describe it. Now, does that mean that I can trust her to babysit my children or that I can confide in her or something like that? I wanted to, but I knew I couldn't. So forgiveness is huge. Forgiveness is a key. And like I said, there's so many people, millions of people, it's almost like a subculture that have endured such traumatic childhoods, a fatherless home, maybe a fatherless and motherless home. And these kids are searching for something. They're broken. They're lost. And they're carrying around all this anger and resentment. And they take it out on other people. Like, what's going on with these riots? It's okay to protest, but when these people destroy property and kill people, it makes you wonder what's really going on with them to carry these types of things out, Things out, right? So many people are stuck. And that's why I like sharing my story here. 
That's why I wrote the book, because I want to help people. Let them know, A, you're not alone. B, there's help out there to help you to get through what it is that you endured. And C, give you an opportunity to help others. You know, so my recovery, I used to always think recovery was tied directly to drugs or alcohol. But in my case, recovery is recovering from that PTSD, CPTSD, anxiety, depression. You know, every day, Eric, if it wasn't my mom, it was my stepdad saying, you're a piece of shit, you're nothing, you're never going to be nothing, you're just like your father, you're garbage, you're worthless. And when I became an adolescent, naturally, there was girls at school that I liked, but I was relatively shy. But what kept running in my mind is, well, they probably think the same thing my mom and stepdad say, that I'm worthless and I'm junk, you know? Why waste my time? So my self-esteem was shot. My, my confidence, my core confidence was non-existent. And it took a while to build that back up. I'm sorry to get off the beaten path. Here, but forgiveness is huge. Some people think you, you're weak to... to you must be a weak man to to go to that length. No, I think just the opposite. I think you're an incredibly strong person to find the ability to forgive. And you know, Eric, forgiveness is not an emotion. It's a decision. Mm-hmm. Let me explain. So, as I mentioned before, I have two, my two youngest brothers. You know, we have, they're, they were fathered by my stepdad. You know, they would have cookouts or whatever over the years, and I would go, and their father would show up, and my adrenaline would start pumping, and I, I was on like, I was just ready to lash out or attack if he even tried anything, but he would start rehashing everything. He would start bringing everything up. Does that mean I didn't forgive him to begin with? No, that doesn't mean that. That doesn't mean that at all. Does that mean now that I've forgiven him, I can trust him? No. Do I want a relationship with him? No, because of the person he is. So, you know, he he apparently is dying. He's on his deathbed. And he called me about three months ago and he said, I just want to say I'm sorry for everything I did to you. And I thanked him. And I said, I forgave you a long time ago. And he, uh, apparently he's a Christian now as well. And um, it was kind of awkward conversation but um i think that was a milestone for him to come to that conclusion he knew he was wrong he asked for forgiveness just so his conscience could be clear i guess so the point i'm trying to make forgiveness is huge not only did i forgive those those tormentors but i've learned to forgive myself and what i mean by that is throughout life i've made mistakes around the house I have to do a repair or something. and I make six trips to the hardware store before I get it fixed. I'm beating myself up, right? Like, how can I be so stupid? I should have knew it was that other part or whatever. I learned to forgive myself and let it go. That sounds simple. But once you're able to do that, it's, it may, it's so, mentally, it's so healthy. It, it's just a powerful thing. I think that is so important for people to hear because – you know, we teach this in the, you know, substance abuse industry. You know, they always say like resentments are the number one reason for relapse for people. And so many people, even in any avenue of recovery, you're in recovery. Yeah, I'm in recovery. It could be different 
ideas of recovery since it's such a wide concept. But forgiveness is exactly what you said. It's letting go. So many people think that for me to forgive somebody, you have to say you're sorry, you have to repent, you have to you know do everything you can to show your sorriness. But that's something we have no control over. What do we have control over? We have control over us. I have control over whether I decide to hold on to all that anger and hatred and rage, or I have the ability or decision, like you said, to let it go. And just as you had said also, you don't ever have to trust them again. Yes, sir. Forgiveness has nothing to do with the decision of your your actions beyond that and whether you trust them or not. But it's a, just a decision of letting go. And I love it. And you said it right on. So let me ask you, Eric, about forgiveness. So when you found the, the ability to forgive, did you experience that as well? Like letting go, how it just felt like all that pressure, all that weight was taken off of you, right? For me, the toughest forgiveness was of myself. It was easier for me to forgive other people than to to forgive the decisions that I made. And I did a lot of really bad things. And if you do read my book, the first part of the book is called Pain, Failure, and Misery, which, and so it's kind of broken up into three parts in the book, but Pain, Failure, and Misery, which is my story of substance abuse. And I was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And when I was in custody the last time in 2002, um, I blamed everybody else. It was everybody else's fault. I'd been illegally searched by the police. I'd had weed planted on me. I'd had, you know, I mean, there were legitimate things that I could blame, but, you know, the reality being is if I wasn't doing the things I would have, was doing, I wouldn't have gotten in that trouble anyways. For me, it was, it was responsibility was a big part to it. Taking responsibility for my actions my decisions and my choices and letting go of all the hatred and rage that I had for other people so that I was able to focus on myself. Right. Because until I let go of that stuff, I was never able going to be able to even look at myself. And, and that's when I found freedom. Each, each of my chapters start with a poem. In one of them, I see, you know, I found freedom when I was, I first found freedom when I was locked up in the jail, which made me realize again, freedom comes from within and nothing to do with anything external. And also for me, self-esteem was destroyed as a result of all the things that I did. Yes. The healing process between you and I, even though there are, you know, different stories, I think are very similar in that healing process. I have, you know, my book is three parts. The first one's pain, failure, misery. The second part is a step into the unknown. And the third part of it's the stepping stones to success. So there's there's actually a whole part of the book that's related to self-empowerment, personal power, uh, self-esteem related type stuff and how I was able to overcome. I started thinking for myself. I started seeing the world differently. You know, we don't describe the world we see. We see the world that we describe. Wow, that's powerful. And yeah, and that was something really huge that I learned. You know, we look at sobriety People get sober because of what they don't want, but people stay sober because of what they do want. I had met with Anthony Brown and we had done a a podcast. I love the thing that he says related to we're all the same, right? He talks about this, you know, this idea that you and I, we're in the same arena. Again, maybe different stories, but what we're actually working on is the same, ourself, personal power, self-love, caring for herself. 
letting go. <laughs> I, I love that. And that's why I, I, the forgiveness part to me is so, is so big. It's huge. And with your story, it, it takes it to a whole different level. How do you let go? How do you, you know, with, with all the abuse and all the trauma and all of the things that you had to go through, how did you get, how did you let that go? I guess we could go back to that term breaking the cycle. Like what happened with you and in your mind and in your thinking that made you decide to break that cycle? Let me start off by saying this. And I mentioned this to you the other day. Your condition does not have to be your conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. So we both shared our conditions at one point in our lives. That condition could, you know, could be the same today as it was then over the progression of time, or you can make choices. I don't want to become another abusive stepfather or a woman beater, etc. What I did was when I first became a Christian, it was Easter of 1997. Maybe it was a little non-traditional. I didn't go to a counselor or a therapist. I would meet with my pastor and I would just pour out my soul and my heart about where I I was, where I am, and where I want to go. I just was, for me, I was just open to what people would suggest and people would tell me. I believe God brought other men into my life, other Christian men who happened to be fathers, who influenced me, impacted me, and kind of showed me the rope, so to speak. And I didn't try to be a know-it-all, something I wanted so bad, right? But that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people say that guy's a helicopter dad or he's this or he's that. I don't think I was a helicopter dad. I was super duper protective protective of my kids, maybe a little too much, but I just wanted the best for them. I, I wanted them to have everything I never had. I wanted them to know that they're in love, not just by me saying I love them, but by me showing it, by providing for them and not merely providing, but teaching them what it takes to have a house, you know what I'm saying? To have a house and nice things. And to, if you want to be successful in life, you got to hard, work hard, you know, in spite of everything else. I want to make kids to know that they, they have a safe home uh, where they won't be berated and locked in the basement. But instead of thinking about that, I carry that out. And I always carry that with me, how I need to be. Um, I know that sounds weird, but I believe for me, like maybe you had male role models in your life as a kid growing, coming up, uncles or friends or whatever. I didn't. But for me, like I said, God brought these men into my life who were very instrumental in helping me to be the father. And it wasn't like I was pleading for help all the time or I was going, I don't know what to do. It wasn't like that. I believe God, through the power of the Holy Spirit and by reading his word, instructed me the the way of life and how I needed to be and how I needed to act. And you have to understand something, Eric. This is what I was taught coming up. The way you deal with conflict is with these. My stepdad taught me that. The way you handle your business, like pay your bills, is you bounce checks. And the way you get your way is you just take stuff. I wanted to be just the opposite. I wanted to be the father my kids can come to no matter what and talk to. I'm not their friend. I'm their father, you know, and they can know that they're loved by me and that I I just cherish them and I'll do whatever I can to help them. It's kind of like 
when my kid first started riding the bike, you know, we took off the training wheels and naturally he fell and scraped up his knee and he came running, not to his mom, but to me. I couldn't make the scrape on his knee go away, but I could comfort him and let him know that he's going to be okay. I cleaned it up, let him know, let them know that I'm going to be a constant, a constant in their life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Was, through all the years, you know, of going to school and working to be counselor and working in this industry, you know, I, I've done a lot of teaching for families in terms of family systems and what a healthy family looks like and things of that nature. Now, the one thing I will say that like the helicopter parents that can become dangerous is, is when the parents don't allow their kids to experience consequences. So, right. you know, they'll, they'll, your, your children will make bad decisions and then the parents will always come in and protect them, which is dangerous because as they become older, they will violate rules. You may not be around and then they have to deal with the consequences, right? Exactly. And so it is important, I think, for parents to allow their children to, when they make bad decisions, to experience the consequences. But the most important one, and I like what you said, though, is that we never withhold love when they make bad decisions or we never withhold love as consequences, you know, because that's a different thing. Um, The love part is important. It's always important, I I believe, to, you know, for your kids to always believe that you love them, that you will be there for them, uh, but you're not always the protector of all the consequences. Exactly. You know, it's like today we, we, I was going to ask you, I was thinking about this and, you know, obviously you dealt with a lot of physical abuse as a child. We live in an age today where it's almost like spanking your children is almost child abuse. What, what are your thoughts on that? I'm glad you brought that up. You know, when you're talking about consequences, it's also true that if you don't discipline your children, I believe, you know, a spanking on the butt or whatever, if they don't respect authority and rule of law when they become of age and they go out into the world, there's going to be problems, right? And they're going to face the consequences. But I personally believe in discipline your children. Now, when my kids became older, the type of discipline that was handed out was different. It wasn't always spankings. Let me clarify. When they became like teenagers, it was different. But I feel if if you don't address it, nip, nip it in the bud, so to speak, it's just going to be a snowball effect and there's going to be consequences. And not only that, Eric, you know, if you just let them do what they want, no consequences, no repercussions, no taking away of the car or, you know, them losing privileges. When they become fathers, they can become lackadaisical. And then the pattern continues because, again, it's learned behavior. And, you know, I mentioned this before, am I a perfect dad? No. But I can tell you this, Eric, my boys are 21 and 19. My 21-year-old is a junior at college. He'll be a senior next month. He made the dean's list twice. My 19-year-old, he works in construction. He's a mason. They both live at home, and they'll stop me, and my older son calls me Dada. He'll, like, he'll be like, I need a hug, Dada. <laughs> we show affection for each other. We constantly, they're constantly telling me they love me. And even in public, you know, we can be at the mall and we run into each other or whatever. That is huge. Yeah. But the thing is, I broke that cycle of abandonment, of abuse, of being locked in the basement, being beaten till no tomorrow. 
of being berated or being ingrained in their heads that they're a piece of garbage, they're nothing, they're never going to be nothing. And nobody can ever take that away from me. And you showed them wrong. Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, if you, if you do healthy parenting and you do good parenting, then there's no cycle that needs to be broken. Exactly right. One thing that stood out again in a conversation that we had had before was that term survivor. One of my chapters is called, Who Am I? And one of the things that I, I talk about is that I, I am a survivor, which is defined as someone who lives after going through something where many people have died. All individuals who have survived the near-death experiences of chemical abuse or even childhood abuse are survivors. And this survivor quality carries traits that we own and we can utilize them if we choose that can help ultimately define us. And surviving that lifestyle, what does it require? It requires creativity and requires improvisation that can ultimately help you become a great leader. Yes. This was a big theme for me was no matter where you've been, what you've done, or even what has been, has been done to you, you can do anything you want if you're willing to fight for it. Yes, sir. And I think that's one of the real power behind your story. You know, you have a story that there are plenty of children out there that have experienced and that are currently going through at this moment in time. And your story, your book, you know, you, you coming on podcasts and you sharing to the world that we can, we can move on. We can love ourselves. We can basically say that, you know what, everything that I was taught isn't real. It's not, it's not true. You know, exactly right. And we can learn to think for ourselves. This is the way I, I think of it as a survivor. I look at all the things I've accomplished as an adult. And there, naturally, there's been some setbacks and some disappointments. But it's the way I picture being a survivor, I'm driving a car. I'm perpetually looking through the windshield. But I glance at that rearview mirror to see where I was. Point of reference, the side mirrors. So I was at that place, but I'm going forward. I'm, I refuse to be stuck in a place of, oh, poor me, you know. Look at me, I'm the victim or whatever, you know. And more than that, and like you probably, I wrote the book because I want to help people. When I go to a venue and I share my story, it'll strike a chord with somebody. And that person, that light comes on. And that was my whole motivation for writing the book. But, you know, a lot of people have told me throughout my life, I'm very tenacious. I'm going to give you a share a little excerpt from the book. So um, there was a point time where I had that paper out that I quit and essentially my stepfather confronted me and you know I was always my brother's protectors and I always looked out for my sister in fact I would take beatings for my brothers because I wanted to protect them he essentially pulled a gun on me and he pulled the trigger and at the time I didn't know he was playing Russian roulette but I instantly peed my pants ran downstairs and hid behind the furnace because I knew there he couldn't get me. He was 6'5", 350, right? And right after that, I started having all these suicidal thoughts. Every day, I'd contemplate how I can kill myself. I'd walk home from school, and I'd watch the traffic. You know, I'm thinking, maybe I can step in front of the garbage truck or the school bus. They can deal with the consequences. So one day, 
I woke up on a Saturday and nobody was home. I thought, this was my chance. I'm looking for this gun. He had a 38 caliber and he had a 12 gauge shotgun, but I was looking for the handgun. I couldn't find it. And that's when the light came on for me. That, and that is, you need to be there for your sister and for your brothers. And from that point on, no matter what they did to me, no matter how awful it was, they could not kill my spirit. They couldn't kill it. The fact that my dad was still not around, the fact that when my mother left my stepdad twice, this, after the second time, we got in an apartment, and finally I'm away from the monster, right? Finally, maybe my dad will come back and my mom will start treating me like she loved me and that she will cherish me like she once did. It was so bad, Eric. I asked my stepdad if I can live with him. Imagine that. And so, but in spite of all that, she couldn't kill my spirit. I had the tenacity to press on, to keep going in spite of what was going on all around me, in spite of it. I pushed, I pushed, I pushed. And I thank God for that because had I not, there would be no more me, right? Or possibly I'll be locked up or buried up. Who knows? So my, I guess I want to encourage your listeners to know this. Nothing is so awful, so bad in your life that you, can, you should contemplate taking your own life. Yeah. You have a value, a significance, a worth that we can't put a price tag on. And you may feel like, ah, uh, I'm insignificant in this neighborhood at my job. I'm easily replaceable. Don't believe the lie. Listen, there's people in your life that you, you may not have met yet that you can impact for the good. There's a plan and a purpose for you. Obviously, I don't know what that is, but God does. Please, just reach out for help. There's people out there willing to help you. And if you have a an addiction to alcohol or drugs, there's places that can help you with that. And there's people that have been where you are. That was, and just like you had said, I mean, that was, that was really the reason that I wrote my book was because I, I'm a advocate for those that are struggling. And I'm also a voice to those that we've lost. And, you know, the, the death rate from substance abuse just keeps climbing and suicide rate is just unbelievable. The amount right. of people that are killing themselves. And I like what you said. I believe that we do have a purpose. Right. But sometimes we don't see it immediately. Sometimes we have to take a step back. Sometimes we got to be patient. And, and, and I love what you said in the sense that there are people out there that are willing to help. And that's yes. why I did the podcast too, was because I want people to realize that I'm here to help people. I'm here to, to offer ideas. I'm not a big fan of solutions because I think solutions get us stuck. Once we, once we find a solution, then we stop because there it is. But I have ideas. And, I, and that's why I love doing this kind of stuff is to speak to different people and getting different ideas of what people have. And we think differently. You know, We have different life experiences and different ideas. And, and life can be beautiful, but it's all about how you look at it. How do you view the world? Do we look at things? Do we view things as problems or are they opportunities? Yes. And that's what I think is so exciting. That's what, that's what's exciting for me every day. I wake up and I think like, ah, wonder what's going to happen today. 
what wonder what kind of experience I'm going to have today. <laughs> right. And sometimes it's a, you know, a pipe busting in my house and I get <laughs> that, right. that I went through recently. <laughs> yeah. I know what that's like. My car, one of my cars died, <laughs> but, uh, but then I just have to start looking and figuring out, you know, ideas of what I can do and what I can do to help whatever situation is. Right. I think you like, I think you have a lot of fantastic ideas. And I, I think that when we talk about child abuse and we talk about, you know, both physical, sexual, or emotional abuse that children have to go through, sadly, there's still a lot of it out there. Yes. And that's why we do need people like you. Thank you, sir. And, you know, it's, to me, it's really, it's heartbreaking, you know, whenever a child is hurt or a woman and it's just spiraling out of control. And that's just of what, what we know of. I'll give you some statistics. I believe it was 2016, there was 750,000 cases of domestic abuse. Of those 750,000 cases of domestic abuse, I believe it was 60% of that involved children. So there was children involved with that domestic abuse, you know, being beaten, being battered, whatever. And whenever there was a, a gun in the home, the, the probability of homicide was went up to 500%. 750,000 cases that were reported. Wow. Now, we know full well how many of those weren't. Right. You know, I don't believe those numbers are exaggerated at all. And this is, this is what I want to say real quick here about recovery and about everything else. So, look, maybe there's people listening that don't have children or may possibly do. And they, especially what's going on in the country today, they think, wow, look at all these badass kids that are running the streets and they're doing this and they're doing that. Well, that ain't my problem. Those ain't my kids. Those ain't my nephews or nieces. That's somebody else's problem. That is your problem, and I'm going to tell you why. So let's just use L.A., for example. L.A. has a lot of issues, right? There's a lot of crime, gang-related stuff, drugs, et cetera, et cetera. So because of that, L.A. County is affected directly. And because of that, California as a whole is affected. And an overview, the whole United States is affected because of L.A. It's like a spiral effect. What I'm trying to say is our country is bad because of cities, states in our country that have real issues inside those states or counties, inside the counties, our cities and villages and towns. And inside of those cities and towns and villages or neighborhoods, inside those neighborhoods are homes where you'll find children with no mother or no father, maybe living with their grandparents. They have no direction. They have no drive. They have no ambition. My point is this. I want to challenge everyone listening. I'm big into volunteering. Ever since I was in I was in 10th grade, I volunteered at a local community center. I was assistant assistant baseball coach, eight, nine-year-old boys. And most of those kids were from broken homes because I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to just be a, you know, a bright light, a bright spot in their lives. Over the years, like most recently, I volunteered to Y, help coach basketball, fifth and sixth grade boys, because I want to make a difference in their lives. So my point is this. I want to challenge people to volunteer an hour a month at either the Boys and Girls Club or the YMCA, YWCA, 
or something like that at the school programs to make a difference in the lives of these children. Because Eric, when I was a kid, there was a local church in the neighborhood that had after school programs. And those people, those volunteers impacted me for the rest of my life. They didn't have to be there. They didn't have to do what they did, but they did. And it, it influenced me. I'm like, what's the catch? There's got to be a catch. There's something weird going on. There was nothing weird going on. These people cared about us as people, and they wanted to just show us the better things in life. So that's a challenge I have. And maybe yourself and others already do these types of things. But we're in real trouble here with this generation coming up. We're in big trouble. You know, when you say that, you know, people say that, uh, oh, it doesn't really affect me. Well, it does. If you have a heart, it affects me. You know, people just kind of ramble on. Oh, this doesn't affect me. This isn't my family. This isn't, you know, but it does with me. It does because I have a heart. I, I can drive out there out in Los Angeles and I, you know, see the, the poor, the homeless. You know, I mean, our homeless population is just skyrocketed here in Southern California in Los Angeles. And I don't know these people personally, but it affects me because I have a heart. You know, I can, I can drive by these people and think, oh my God, this is sad. I hate to see people living the way that these people are living. Right. It's really so important with me, with, with, uh, of course, my life experience and my, my bigger focus being the substance abuse stuff that I always put myself out there that I'm always available. You can always email me, I'm not asking for money. <laughs> you know, right. just, you know, I want to be available for people. If, uh, if they need somebody to talk to, if they need some ideas or some advice that I can give them, uh, I'm, I'm probably the most non-judgmental person you could ever imagine. I have again, worked in this industry. There's nothing that I really could hear today or see that really surprises me. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's also important for, to have people like that in your life is to have the people that aren't going to judge you, aren't going to criticize you aren't going to call you names or say stupid things to you. Right. That all of these people need sometimes some ears. Yeah, exactly right, man. That's awesome. And thank you for being in that light in the dark place in which you live, man. We need more people like you, you know? Yeah, we work, we work as hard as we can. And the sad part and why this motivates me even more is, you know, you, like you go on Facebook or you see different posts and it's, it's literally almost every day that I either know somebody, see some, something or hear news or see a post of another person that died. And that's just another thing that just keeps me wanting to push harder and harder because this is just, it's insane. It's crazy. Yes. I was, when I was talking to Bob Forrest, he, he was talking about, you know, the, you know, like the heroin overdose with the fentanyl and and, you know, for me, I just always kept thinking about that. I was like, man, I started with a beer. You know, we've got 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds that are starting with heroin today. That's insane. Where's the day when we just started by smoking weed? <laughs> right. Did you see the value, though, of what I was trying to say about, of like, a man in particular trying to be involved with, like, Big Brother program? Or 100%. Having um, role models. Having, um, you know, like you were talking about with, with your kids, you know, in the sense of showing your kids what being a healthy person looks like. Right. That's part of what we do with counseling and we work with clients and, and I always personally make sure that what they see and what they hear from me are 
things that look like what being and sounding healthy looks like. Right. I also think, and I was thinking about this when you were talking on, and I think this is important for the listeners to, to think about is when you were talking about everything that you were trying to do to please your mother, you wanted your mother to love you. You wanted to, you'd give her this, you'd give her money and nobody can make you feel anything. And I know a lot of people struggle with that idea that nobody can make you feel anything. It's all a decision that we ultimately make. And I always like to put it is that what you do within the first like five seconds of having a feeling will be very dependent on what happens with it. And so when we really realize that, that our feelings are our responsibility to take care of, to experience. But if that idea is true, you can't ever make anybody happy either. That's a good point. And I think that's so important for people to understand that our feelings are our responsibility. Their feelings are their responsibility. Now, I can't make you happy, but I can be happy with you. Right. You know, and I think that's where you always hear, oh, this person makes me so happy. No, they don't. You're happy with the person, but they're not making you happy. That's a really good point, Eric. Thanks for bringing that up. Because I think, like you said, I think a lot of people struggle with that, you know? You make me angry. No, you don't. That's a decision that you're making. And it's all about, there's difference between, you know, a feeling, like if I come and punch you in the face, you, you know, yes, I will definitely have made an impact on you feeling angry. And so we talk about like anger is a primary feeling, which could be that aspect, but a secondary emotion. Yes. And so, and usually as emotion, it stems from something else. And usually that's sadness, hurt, or fear. And, and so anger is more defined as a neurological impulse that pushes us to act upon something. Right. When, when people can ultimately realize that, you know what, I control my feelings. I'm responsible for them. They're mine because that way I'm not giving power to other people. Right. Really good stuff, man. So before we get to an end here, I want you to maybe give any information that you want to give out there, your website, remind everybody the name of your book. Okay. I'm Joe Potosi. The name of my book is When the Dust Settled, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. And you can find my book. Um, if you go to my website, joepotosi.com, there you'll find the links to re- get my book. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Zulon Press. I also have a Facebook page, Joe Potosi. Instagram, When the Dust Settled. I'm also YouTube. I just started a YouTube page, When the Dust Settled. And Twitter, Joe Potosi. But again, I just want to encourage everyone out there that in this process of recovery, we need to take it one day at a time. Because sometimes we become complacent and lackadaisical. And then things happen in our lives and we kind of revert back to this thinking, thinking type of mentality. And so all we have is today. So for today, how I interact with other people, how I, you know, look at life in general is, at least for me, is paramount, if you understand. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I think it would be absolutely fantastic. Anybody out there that, you know, is currently going through any of this stuff, if they're listening or have experienced any of this stuff, reach out to Joe. And I know Joe can definitely probably give you some guidance. Definitely check out his book. 
And I want to thank you, Joe, for taking your time this morning, although it's afternoon where you live. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Eric, for this opportunity. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. And thank you. uh, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Again, this is another episode of Recovering Through Highness. Mm -hmm.